Over the last 10 or so years, research groups like the Barna Group or Pew Research Center have made famous a, couple, a new way that people identify their religion. Maybe you've heard people identify themselves as this, or maybe you've just seen people act like this. The, the, title, go, the title is this, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Have you heard that before? Yeah. I, what does this mean? I'm not even sure if the people who use this label knows, know what it means. And, and I guess that's probably partially the point. They don't want to be pinned down or restrained by a set of rules or by an external authority. People who say I'm spiritual, not religious, value their individual autonomy. But they still believe in some vague higher power. The details of that higher power aren't really material. All that matters is that this higher power sort of hovers above their existence and is ready to be benevolent to them whenever they need it. But, you know, I think we could also flip this label around and a lot of people would fall under, this, under that category. You probably know people like this. Maybe some of us act like this. Instead of being spiritual but not religious, there are a lot of people who are religious but not spiritual. If the first category of people shrug off external rules and authority, the second category finds solace only in external rules and authority. You know, they do the right rituals. They belong to the right group. And presto, they are right with God. Having satisfied the requirements of external appearance, they can go on being internally unaffected. What if there was a third way? What if there is a benevolent king who came down from heaven to meet us in our need? And what if this king makes us whole, not just externally, but internally? What if this king doesn't just change our behavior, he changes our hearts? And the result of being made whole by this benevolent savior is the desire to submit to his words as sovereign Lord. Well, we'll see that third way from John 5, 1 to 17. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, he enters a place of dead spirituality and dead religion. And he shows that life is in his name alone. So follow along with me as I read God's word from John 5, 1 to 17. After I read this, I'll say something like, this is God's word. If you agree, would you say, thanks be to God. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. 
But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The main point, our main idea of John 5, 1 to 17 is this. Jesus is the compassionate, sovereign son of God whose word makes us whole. Jesus is the compassionate, sovereign son of God whose word makes us whole. And if that's true, then Jesus is to be trusted more than dead spirituality and dead religion. We'll see this main point emerge as we narrate what really is the two scenes of this passage. First scene is there is a healing, and the second scene is there's just an aftermath of the healing. Now, before we dive in, we're picking John back up in chapter five. Last year, we went through chapters one to four. So I thought it could be helpful to give a little reintroduction or recap of what we've uh, been, been in John so far. So if you're coming to this book for the first time or for the first time in a long time, your North Star in reading the Gospel of John comes in chapter 20, verse 31, actually the very end of it. You can flip there if you'd like just a few more pages. John 20, verse 31. There, John states his purpose or his goal in writing the book. John 20, verse 31, he writes, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This verse is your North Star for the whole book. It guides you. You see, if this is John's goal, then he needs to establish Jesus's identity. So that means that John doesn't set out to write a strict chronological biography of Jesus. Rather, John will narrate really important moments and interactions that display who Jesus is, that display that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So if John's goal is chapter 20, verse 31, then John desires his readers to respond to Jesus in a certain way. He desires his readers to respond to Jesus with faith. So throughout the book, John will show what faith in Jesus looks like and even what it doesn't look like. So John is the gospel that has the longest conversations between Jesus and individuals. We've seen some of them already. Between, for instance, Jesus and John the Baptist, or Jesus and Nathaniel and Philip, or Jesus and Nicodemus the Pharisee, or between Jesus and the woman at the well. Again, if chapter 20, verse 31 is John's goal in writing, then we should keep in mind, anytime we're reading John, what the result of believing the truth about Jesus is. The result, John says, that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God is that, is that we have life in his name. That is the result. Now, this implies a couple of things. This implies that no one apart from Jesus has life in themselves. And this also means the result of life in Jesus's name that John will culminate his book and spend a disproportionate amount of time in his book telling us how Jesus gives us life in his name. How did Jesus do that? By giving his life for us. That's what John culminates toward. 
So here we are leading up into chapter 5. One commentator on John says that as we head into chapter 5 and the chapters following, Jesus' miracles grow bigger and his words grow bolder. And again, both Jesus' words and Jesus' miracles serve John's goal to show who Jesus is and to show us what he's come to do. Both Jesus' miracles and Jesus' words also demand a response from you and me. But starting in chapter 5, we see that more and more people respond to Jesus by rejecting him and by opposing him. But this is the path that will lead Jesus to the cross. So with that big picture in mind, let's head into John 5. John 5, 1 to 17, the first scene is the healing Here we're focusing on verses one to eight. So like John usually does, he sets the scene for us. He does this in great detail. In fact, you notice nobody even talks until the end of verse six. Now, before we talk about those, the details of the setting, I just think there's significance in the fact that we have details about the setting. I mean, think about this. John tells us the precise location of this pool in Jerusalem. He tells us its Aramaic name, perhaps to accommodate his Gentile readers. He tells us the exact number of years the man in consideration has been disabled, 38. At the beginning of 1 John, another book that the Apostle John wrote, John says that he writes about things that he's seen and heard and touched. And it's details like this in the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Details like this remind us that John isn't writing about fables and myths. John's writing about historical events. Friends, Christianity isn't first about moral principles by which to live. Christianity is not just one other option on the buffet of how to become a better person. No, Christianity is first about events and facts that really happened in history. And the biggest one of all is that if Jesus did not really die on a Roman cross and rise from the dead three days later, then our whole faith crumbles and is useless. So here in John 5, the one who writes with such detail gives evidence that he witnessed this really happened. So back to setting up the scene in verse 1. John tells us the place and the occasion of of when this all happened. Jesus had been in his home region of Galilee, and we remember that on his way uh, uh, from Galilee, he deliberately stopped in Samaria, a place that Jews like him usually avoided. And now Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, it says. Now, even though Jerusalem was south of Galilee, the Bible always says that people go up to Jerusalem. That's because Jerusalem was elevated. The temple was on a mountain or a hill. And Jesus, John tells us, goes to Jerusalem because there's a feast there. John doesn't tell us what feast it is. There were several feasts that God's people made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for, including the Feast of Passover. And there are two other times in John's gospel where he tells us that Jesus went to Jerusalem for Passover. And if this is another one of those times, then that means that Jesus's public ministry lasted at least three years. It could be a clue about that. But regardless of what feast this is, it reminds us Jesus always observed God's law. It reminds us even that Jesus going to Jerusalem for a feast One of the things that Jesus came to do 
was to fulfill the law of God. That means that Jesus was obedient to the law of God where you and I broke it. It also means that Jesus is the one to whom the law of God points. So for example, let's take the feast of the Passover. That points to him. You might remember the original Passover happened while the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. God's people slaughtered a lamb and spread its blood on their doorposts in order so that God's judgment would pass over them because the lamb went in their place. Earlier in this book, even, John the Baptist recognizes Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came to fulfill God's law. We get a little reminder of that here. So as we continue in John 5, the setting narrows in focus as John continues. We see where Jesus first ends up when he gets to Jerusalem. He ends up at a pool by the sheep gate called Bethesda. Bethesda means house of outpouring or house of mercy. And the Sheep Gate was likely near the northern part of the city, where it would have been likely that Jesus entered in Jerusalem. Now, excavators believe to have discovered the Bethesda Pool, a complex really of two pools that's supported by four covered colonnades, with a fifth colonnade separating them. So just colonnade is not a word you and I use every day. This is a series of pillars that supports one side of a roof. So this is where Jesus is in Jerusalem. So John doesn't just tell us details about the place. We go on. He tells us details about the people who are at this place. This was a place for the disabled. John notes a place for the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And he tells us not just the kinds of people who were there, but how many. Right? Not just some disabled, but a multitude. And we might ask, why did they gather at this place, at Bethesda? Well, if you're using the ESV translation, you'll notice that it skips verse 4. Uh, and you'll see a footnote at the end of verse 3. You can take your eyes and go down to the bottom of the page. And it contains what is left. Verse 4, that, that's not included there, said, would, would have said, For an angel of the Lord went down to a certain at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, this is not included because this was likely not part of the original text of the Gospel of John. Now, how do we know that? We'll just kind of a brief overview. The way we got what you and I are reading right now is through copies of the original manuscripts. Right, so not only um, are there thousands of copies, that, uh, unlike any other ancient document, the copies date back extremely close to when the original, the original text was written, also unlike any other ancient document. So that means because of the quantity and quality of manuscript copies, we can be confident of that, that we have the original text of the Bible. And so the best and the earliest manuscript copies don't include John 5, verse 4. If you want to look more into that, we actually have a couple of good introductory books available in the back. One's called Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert. The other one's called Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter Williams. Uh, both are available in the back. You can check those out. So here we are. We are in the Bethesda pool. There is a multitude of disabled people there. And from that multitude, Jesus seeks out one. John tells us that this one person has been disabled, likely paralyzed, for 38 years. 
And we think about it back then, that's longer than a lot of people lived back then, 38 years. And then in verse six, John says that Jesus saw this man and knew what he had been through. Here is another just small example that Jesus is equal to God, that he can do what God can do, that Jesus knows everything. It was the same for the Samaritan woman at the well, right? I mean, Jesus never talked to her, but he knew everything about her. He knew the unfortunate parts of her life that she kept hidden. It's the same here. Now, while it's a small glimpse at Jesus's omniscience, this is a long gaze at Jesus's compassionate heart. Think about what Jesus is doing. He's on his official law-fulfilling business. He has things to do. He has places to be. And as he enters Jerusalem, you think, wouldn't it have been just been easier to rush past the Bethesda pool? Wouldn't it have just been easier for Jesus to say, you know, I got my religious duty to fulfill, guys, and I'm going to be blind to the needs around me. Wouldn't it have even been easier for Jesus maybe just to slow down at Bethesda to take a look around and say, oh, this is so awful, and then just leave after that? That would have been easier, but that's not what Jesus does. Jesus slows down in the places of need. He doesn't insulate himself from hardship. He goes to it. Maybe here's a question for you and I to talk about uh, after we're done uh, with worship this morning. What are the places of need where we can slow down and where we can hang out like Jesus did? We got people here who serve at the City Life Center for Youth for Christ. We have people here who have served at the Hope Center for Building Hope at the City with refugees. People here who have served with Laura's Home at the City Mission. People here who have served at Cleveland Pregnancy Center. What are the places of need where we can slow down like Jesus would slow down. We think about this man. What, what draws Jesus to this one man in particular? Is it something about how impressive this guy is? Something about his stature? On one level, it is nothing about this man that attracts Jesus to him. It is Jesus's own sovereign choice. I mean, why this man and not the other people who are sick? I think about, think about you as an individual. Aren't there people who grew up just like you with all the same circumstances as you, with all the same advantages as you, with Christian parents and you heard the gospel at a young age? Was it something really about you that prompted Jesus to save you? Oh, the point, and none of us deserve mercies. Jesus has mercy upon whom he will have mercy. So what is it that draws Jesus to this man, well, his, his sovereign mercy. But on another level, I think it's the depth of this man's suffering that draws Jesus's heart close to him. And it reminds us that when we are suffering, we are tempted to think that Jesus wants nothing to do with me. Tempted to think that we feel useless, tempted to think we, you know, I'm just damaged goods. I love the Bible for one reason. I love the Bible because it is realistic about life and that the Bible speaks about deep and serious suffering. The Bible is not Pollyannish about the effects of sin on the world, but Christ's heart breaks over the damage that sin has caused in his world. And so maybe a few of us have suffered nearly as long as this man at Bethesda. Maybe some of us like him feel like everyone has looked past me 
and has not seen me as a person and has not given me the help that I need. Well, today I pray that you know what this man came to find out, that the Son of God sees you and knows you. And even more than that, I pray that you know that the Son of God came to lay down his life for people like you. Brothers and sisters, reflecting on Jesus's compassion, being drawn toward this man, let's ask the Lord to give us compassionate hearts like his. I remember uh, Maddie Schaefer, she's not here this morning. Maddie Schaefer shared a prayer during her missions trip to Kenya. Uh, Just a simple line. She said, Lord, break my heart with what breaks yours. I love that prayer. It's such a good prayer. And I think this scene would remind us of that. We don't know um, what Jesus knows about the people around us, but here's a way that we can grow in compassion. We should remember that the people around us likely have been through a lot more than we can see on the surface. The people around us have likely been through and are going through a lot more than we can see on the surface. So your grumpy old neighbor (laughs) actually might be dealing with serious depression and loneliness. Maybe kids in the room. The kid from your class or your team who is kind of a bully might actually have a really hard life at home. Doesn't excuse what they're doing, but there might be more going on than the surface. The person sitting next to you at church might have serious heartache behind that kind, smiling face. Let's ask the Lord to to display his compassion in how we see and know the people around us, just like he did. Well, this isn't the end of the scene at the pool. Jesus actually talks to this man, and it strikes me that Jesus is the first one who speaks. John later writes in 1 John that we love God because he first loved us. Here's another example of that. And when Jesus asks this man if he wants to be healed, it's clear that this guy doesn't know the person who's in front of him. This guy is pretty much stuck on this sort of superstitious spirituality. Now, although most conclude that verse four isn't part of the original text, it appears that this man believes that the waters at Bethesda can heal him. The the stirring of the water was likely a natural cause from a spring bubbling, but a legend of healing powers had surrounded it. But the thing is, nowhere does the Bible teach that an angel stirs up water and the first person who gets in gets healed. That's a superstitious legend that this guy had just come to believe. And I think this helps us make sense of what seems to be like an obvious question from Jesus. As is often the case, Jesus is up to something more. I appreciate what one pastor said on this verse. He said, the question isn't just an inquiry, do you want to be healed? The question is an invitation. Do you want to be healed? Maybe it's like if you saw a kid trying to clean their little toy car in a puddle of mud. (laughs) You might gently ask, are you trying to clean that? It's an inquiry and it's an invitation to something better. Jesus wants this man to see that the healing he longs for won't be found in a pool. It will be found in him. And before this man recognizes that, Jesus is gracious to show him that. 
Jesus does not need this man's invitation. Jesus does not need this man's permission to intervene in his life. Thank God Jesus works like that, or else you and I would be lost if he had to wait for our permission to intervene in our lives. And so at Jesus's word, the man is healed. Just as the 38 years demonstrated the gravity of the disease, now that this guy can carry his mat shows the completeness of the cure. So here, Jesus displays his equality with God. Remember that God spoke and creation came to being. And here, just by Jesus's words, this man is healed and made whole. Reflecting on this, friend, I wonder, what are you banking on for forgiveness? What are you banking on for your life? What are you banking on to make you whole? Is it something that just comes from people? Is it something that you have pretty much made up on your own and you think this sounds good to me? Is it some kind of vague, superstitious spirituality? Friend, let me gently tell you that God is not the God of Alcoholics Anonymous. He is not the God of our own understanding. We don't get to make up who God is. He has revealed who he is through his son, Jesus Christ. So this morning, the son of God has intervened in your life and asked you the same question that he asked this man. Do you want to be healed? Healed not just of your sickness, but healed of what we'll see is our biggest problem, our sin. And the only way is to come to the one who bore our sins in his body on the tree, who died so that we might live to righteousness, the one who's by, by his wounds we are healed. Brother and sister, reflecting on this, I wonder, is this the message you gently but clearly communicate to the people who are close to you? That you need more than just a vague spirituality, that you need a clear trust in Jesus alone. Christian, do you communicate that to your friends and your, and your family? Or are you just satisfied with something vague, like you're satisfied, well, I know that person believes in God. I know that person has been to church a couple times. Are we gonna be satisfied with just that? If Jesus alone is, is whose wounds and whose words heal, then people need more than just a vague spirituality. We should ask of the people around us, have they left behind all that they had hoped in and trusted in Jesus alone? Now, if we stopped at the end of this paragraph, the story would, would have a relatively happy ending, but it's more complicated than that. There is aftermath to the healing, and this is the second scene. We're gonna look at verses nine to 17. We'll go through that a little quicker. Uh, and it's, this second scene's broken up into three smaller interactions. There's an interaction between the religious leaders and the healed man. There's an interaction between the healed man and Jesus. And there's an interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders. All right, so looking at the aftermath, there's an interaction first between the religious leaders and the healed man. We look at verse nine and it kicks us off with a very minor note. Now that day was the Sabbath. If the first, if the first paragraph inflated the balloon, this just few words starts to deflate the balloon. In the gospels, when the Sabbath comes, trouble from the religious leaders is, usually comes with it. And the trouble starts with the religious leaders and the healed man. This word in verse seven for Jews refers specifically to Jewish religious leaders. 
And notice what they focus on about this man. What is it? What's their beef with this, the guy who was healed? He was carrying a mat. He was carrying something around. So who cares about that? What's the big deal? Well, let me, let's try to see where they're coming from. The Sabbath was supposed to be the day when you rested from your normal labors. Now, and what started for them as a noble effort to keep the Sabbath from becoming just another business day, the scribes and Pharisees added more and more rules to the Sabbath. So if the Sabbath is like a house, think of their extra rules like fences and hedges around the house that are meant to protect it. Now, one of those extra rules is that you couldn't carry something from one location to another. So mind you, this rule is not in the Bible. It's just from their tradition. So when the religious leaders question the healed man, the healed man points to the instructions of the one who healed him. Now, some claim this is this guy trying to shift the blame away from himself to get Jesus in trouble. I I have a hard time seeing that. I don't see why someone who's just been healed by Jesus would want to get Jesus in trouble. I think it's more along the lines, like, I'm going to listen to the guy who just healed me, not to you. So do you see a difference of what they focus on, of, of what the religious leaders focus on and what the healed man focused on? The religious leaders were more concerned that this man was breaking their rules than they were joyous that this man was healed. Wow. Maybe this is a hint that you and I can be more like these religious leaders than we realize. You know, we, we should long for this place to be filled with people who look like they came from the pool at Bethesda. We should long for this place to be filled with people who don't look like they go to church, <laughs> who don't look like the typical people who go to church. Why not? We'll, we'll pray for some face tattoos to show up at the church at West Creek. Why not? We'll see it in a moment that obedience matters. But when we focus only on our external do's and don'ts, you know, we will miss out on the rest that Christ offers us. You see, the irony of the religious leaders is that in trying to protect the day of rest, their extra rules actually made it a day that was burdensome. That's because any man-made religion begins by saying, you need to do more. You know, friends, Christianity begins with what Jesus has already done. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. He causes us to rest from our dead-end efforts of trying to win God's favor. As the Gospel of John continues, we'll see that Jesus won that favor for us by virtue of his sinless life and his substitutionary death. Friends, when we focus just on our external do's and don'ts like these religious leaders, we will miss out on the heart of Christ. The religious leaders forgot that the law of God was not first about rules and regulations. The law of God was first about loving God and loving neighbor. They forgot that the Sabbath wasn't meant to be just this empty ritual. It was meant to be a time when they were freed up to enjoy God and to help and love their neighbor. That is real rest. And notice that's how Jesus treated the Sabbath. Listen, there is is Christian freedom with what you do on Sunday. There's Christian freedom with that. 
But I wonder, maybe this is another topic of discussion for afterwards. I wonder what would it do for your walk with Christ if you seriously set aside an entire day every week when you enjoy God and you serve the people around you? What would that do for your walk with Christ if the Lord's day became the Lord's day and not the Lord's hour? That's the first interaction of the aftermath. Before the religious leaders uh, could confront Jesus, Jesus slips away. The second interaction of the aftermath comes between Jesus and the healed man. So Jesus meets him again. This time it's in the temple. Now perhaps this man had longed to go to the temple and he never could go on his own. And this is the first thing that he does. And it's striking also, as one uh, old pastor points out, that while Jesus speaks sharply against the religious hypocrites that ran the temple, you know what Jesus still did? He still went to temple. Oh, I think that's a lesson for us today. Jesus tells this man in verse 14, he says, see, you are well, likely meaning that the healing is permanent, not temporary. But then Jesus says to him, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And, you know, we might have a couple questions after Jesus says that. Does Jesus really expect this guy never to sin again? I don't, I don't think that's what Jesus is, is intending. The rest of the Bible, the book of James, says that we all still stumble in many ways. First John says that if anyone says he has no sin, he is a liar. I think the truth that Jesus' instruction seems to be is, God, you need to live gratefully in light of what I've done for you. <laughs> this will mean that you have a new stance against your sin. So maybe another question we would have after these, what Jesus says, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. I might ask, so does that mean this man's disability came as a result of his sin? Well, yeah, it does, it does seem so. I mean, this, all disease and all ailments are a result of sin generally. They are results of the brokenness that sin has brought into the world. But not all disease is a result of sin specifically. We'll see that with a man born blind in a couple of chapters in John chapter 9. But here, it does seem that it was something that this man did that led to his condition. And here, Jesus reminds us that our biggest problem is not always our most obvious and our most physical one. In this man's case, his physical condition was just a symptom of a deeper problem. Now, for you and me, this doesn't mean that we go around telling people that they are sick because they have done something wrong. No, that would be a misapplication of this passage. Of course, that's a possibility, but we don't have the kind of knowledge that Christ does. Where we can stand firmly is that we should live lives of repentance, you and me. We, where we can stand firmly is that we should always examine our hearts and our habits, see to confess and turn from sin. Where we can stand firmly is that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when we give an account to God, and when we stand before him, we will be found guilty of rebellion against him if we are standing on our own. And we will face God's right judgment for eternity in a place that the Bible calls hell. But God is kind and gave his son to live the life that we didn't live and to die the death that we deserved. 
And so while we, when we trust in Jesus and follow him, he stands in our place before God. He rescues us from our sin and its punishment. Now, that doesn't mean you and I will never get sick again on earth, but it does mean that our deepest sickness is gone. And one day Jesus will get rid of all of its effects in the world and in us. And when Jesus talks to this man in the temple, he speaks about a deeper problem and he speaks about a worse outcome. Jesus shows his priorities and they should be our priorities as well. I've heard it said like this, that Jesus cares about all kinds of suffering, especially eternal suffering. Jesus cares about all kinds of suffering, especially eternal suffering. That shapes our priorities as individuals and as a church. So that means we care about helping the poor, helping the sick, helping the widow and the orphan, helping the addict and helping the abused. We listen and serve and give sacrificially and generously. But healing, friends, is more than just financial peace. Healing is more than emotional stability. Healing is more than physical well-being. Healing is more than being sober. Healing is about being given new life that will last for eternity through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I've heard it said uh, that recovery without Jesus is a dead end. And speaking of Jesus as the Son of God, that brings us to the final interaction from this aftermath of the healing. This time it's between the religious leaders and Jesus. So verse 15 says that the healed man told the religious authorities it was, it, it was Jesus who healed me. And we aren't told why he did this. Perhaps uh, it's because he felt obligated to the authorities and didn't realize their intentions against Jesus. But we go on to verse 16 and their intentions against Jesus become very clear. They are not good. They began to persecute Jesus for what he did on the Sabbath. Jesus was breaking their traditions and was therefore a threat to their power. But notice how Jesus answered their persecution. Jesus doesn't respond to them saying, you guys don't understand what the Sabbath was meant to be. Notice how Jesus responds to them. He responds with his own identity. He says what seems curious at first. My father is working until now, and I am working. Maybe if we just take one statement at a time, it will make more sense. My father is working until now. So here, from the bat, Jesus claims for himself a closeness with, the, with God that no one else has claimed. He is my father. And besides this, this is another way to say that the father continues to work. So yes, though God rested on the seventh day of creation, the first Sabbath, it's not like God can take a break from upholding the universe once a week. He continues to work. God is justified in continuing to work on the Sabbath. But then what Jesus says next, and I am working. As we'll see next week, the religious leaders could connect the dots Here, Jesus claims equality with God. Theologian Don Carson says that Jesus is saying that whatever factors justify God's continuous work also justify my continuous work. In other words, Jesus is implying I am equal with God the Father. And if that's who Jesus is, then the healed man did the right thing to listen to Jesus's instructions. So we come full circle. Jesus is the compassionate son of God who is our savior. We trust him to save. We don't trust dead spirituality to save us. 
We don't trust dead religion to save us. Jesus is also the sovereign son of God who is Lord, not just savior. We listen and follow his words, not our own words, not our own traditions. Let's pray to him. Lord, we come to you again confessing that we do not have your heart of compassion. Lord, we come to you confessing that we, in our pride, follow our own wisdom and follow our own external rules. And we come to you confessing that we need new hearts. So Lord, would we come to you and ask, would you make us whole? Would you heal us from our heart of sin? We trust that you are able because you are God the Son and we trust you are able because you have laid down your life for us to give us new life. So would we live lives that continue to turn from ourselves and to turn to you? We pray in your name, amen. Amen.